celebrating success, learning from legends, and growing poppies. This is Tall Poppy Talk with Grace Lewis. Kia ora and welcome to Tall Poppy Talk. Kiri Hill. He's a speed and agility trainer working with all sorts from the New Zealand men's sevens rugby team. He's a head of speed and agility for the Waikato University Adams Centre for High Performance. He's a head coach, the technical lead on the national relay system, where he utilizes his prime minister's scholarship studies. He also serves as an advisory consultant with the Rod Dixon's Kids Marathon Foundation. He's also got a lot of prior roles, whether that be the national coordinator of relay and sprints with Athletics New Zealand. He's been in teaching and education, talent identification, athlete development, and just performance improvement, targeting sprints and agility a lot. Kiri Hill has an incredible career and a knowledge that I cannot wait to dive into. Kiri, where and how are you today? I'm in Tauranga um, and um, have spent most of my working life in Auckland or, or overseas and entrenched down here now the last years after eight years in the Middle East. And um, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I think I'm, if, if I'm in sport, well, it's, I'm lucky, lucky, lucky. Um, um, I had a teaching career, primary and secondary, and uh, we thought that was heaven. I was on the North Shore, I was at Wesley Boys High, and that to me was a, a, top, a great school and a, and a wonderful area in the country. And um, and was got approached to be the director of coaching for Athletics New Zealand. And uh, I thought I already had a dream job, and that one's like even better. One of the things I often say to young ones these days is, "Tell me what your aim is, and then tell me where you think you'll be in five years' time." And because I find you, you're a worker, you're consistent, you're a good sort. In five years' time from now, you're wrong. It'll be way better than that. And so that's come about through, uh, through just what, what's happened to me with with luck. You know, I've, um, when the, the last time I went when I went to the Middle East, um, didn't have a CV, probably never had one. That you just get asked to do jobs, and um, next thing you know, you just roll into another spot. So teaching was an opportunity. I loved it. It's coaching, parenting, teaching, they're all the same thing, really. I ended up being director of coaching for Athletics New Zealand. Being in, the, in that role, uh, you meet people from other countries as well. I used to go to Australia Institute of Sport quite a bit for that. Um, ended up having a bit of time, not a lot, but a bit of time with um, a guy called Esa Peltola, who was the head of the sports science there at the time. Um, he went off to Qatar. Um, but that's oh, that, we come back to that because um, I end because you're a director of coaching, you drag along another couple of coaches and you go overseas and you do various courses for the world body, world athletics, IAAF it was then, the International Federation. And then they send you off to do their courses in third world countries or the islands and places like that. So, so one of the places I ended up was in Singapore. Oh, an hour and a, a year and a half after after going there, I got a call out of the blue one night, and the guy said to me, um, uh, "Kerry, it's uh, Ong Yok Fee here." I said, mm -hmm. "Oh, lovely to hear from you. Uh, how are you?" You know, a year and a half later, and he said, "We want you to come and be our coaching director." I said, "Well, uh, <laughs> no thanks. I'm just about to start a whole new big program here." And he said, "We'll double your salary." And I said, "No, no thanks." And he said, "We'll triple it." Oh, hang on then. I'll think about it. It's Saturday night. I'll let you know on Monday morning. So that was a bit of a bit of a discussion with um, the chairman of Athletics New Zealand and and um, uh, and the wife, of course. So um, and off we went. Now 
came back and went back into um uh oh, long story short ended up at sport north harbour and that led also to part-time or oh, full-time there but part-time also at the millennium institute or the athletic club which became the millennium institute north shore base then that led to going back to australia again to things and then the guy from australia said would you well, he didn't ask me actually. He was in. He was back in Qatar, in Doha, Qatar, at the world's largest sports academy, the Aspire Academy for Sports Excellence. And they rang out of the no, an agent of theirs in Paris rang out of the blue one day and said, "Mr. Kelly, we want you to be, uh, want you to be head of uh, talent development at Aspire Academy in Qatar." I said, "Well, do you?" And the way it came across was right on drive time in Auckland going home I'm, and, and I thought this is the radio DJ having me on so I, I said some stupid things and in the end I realized this might be a bit serious I think he's for real so that, as it happened I was in the middle of a relay scholarship and uh, so we janked it up and I went and sat down and had a talk with him and uh, as part of the trip that I was doing there to, to university in Paris he said okay well we'll contact you and um, six months later would you would you please come to Cologne, Germany. Well, as it turns out, I've got a relay team in, in Netherlands that week. Yeah, can do. So mm -hmm. okay, we had a good chat and they said, okay, we'll get back to you. And a year later, I contacted the, one of the guys and said, what did you actually do about that job? Oh, we want you to come uh, next month. I was just going to call you. <laughs> yeah, right. -o. So I thought, okay. I'm certainly going to have a look at and look at your country and look at this facility before anything. So, did that, went up, had a look, came back, said to, said to Mrs. Um, this is exciting. It's a, it's pretty good pay, um, and it's a fantastic facility, fantastic opportunity. Away we go. So, toddled up there and did that uh, that job for eight years, and it's basically like talent ID, and all the kids in the country get talent tested every year. All the primary, primary kids get talented tested every year. And um, so the talent testing team I worked in cahoots with because I was doing the talent development. And my role was to find a, and my staff, up to 50, we, well, I had to find a sport for these guys if they weren't good at football or, or athletics. I had to find another sport. And they have training camps all over the world. So I'd say, okay, well, I want to go to London and we'll do golf, go-karting and rowing. And can we find a any of these kids any good at those and we'll take them home and one of them ended up rowing in the asian games a few months later actually and he was only 17. but um uh or we go to germany and we stay in the bailer and we'll look at fencing and boxing and uh maybe athletics or something like that so uh that was it was an exciting time and training camps all over all over the world and that there's sort of an odd budget situation where they have money for hundreds of thousands of dollars for training camps but if i want to go and buy some volleyballs well there was an occasion when i, I went and bought them myself <laughs> it was it was a it's a funny old thing uh with situation sometimes with budgeting and accountants and god knows what had a, had a while then we had our son i thought well i wanted to get a little bit of new zealand education so camp can have the last two years in new zealand and when i come back well the housing prices in auckland are insane the, the traffic is is worse and uh i think I'll, I'll go out of town this time to somewhere where i can get to auckland or hamilton Rotorua if i need to go to tauranga where i've got two fantastic friends who married each other from my athletics group and uh 
and I walked into uh, a, a small a small role here that evolved soon into working with Sport Bay of Plenty, a trust funded role part part time part time uh, coaching coaches everywhere throughout the Bay of Plenty on behalf of them and Athletics Waikato. That's what I'm doing now. Half a job, eight years, ten years later, uh, and along the way do other little things like um, when the sevens uh, want to get a bit involved, or I've got a good squad of athletes, and consult out to other sports. I did something with Northern Districts Women's Cricket recently, and it's an exciting time. You know, it's like if I was retired, that's exactly what you'd want to do. So I get a few pennies for that as well, not a lot, <laughs> but enough. Sorry, I've raved on a little bit too long there. One of, one of the things that affects my coaching these days is based on my own experience at school where I've got colours for, for, big deal, but i got colours for basketball, softball and swimming, but not for my two favourite sports, athletics and rugby. You had to be a certain weight to get into the first 15. I was too small along with several other good players. <clears throat> but in the athletics, I ran in the school 100 yards and came last by a long way. And I was in the long jump and I came fourth out of five. I beat my mate, the cyclist. And then like six years later, I'm in those two events in the Commonwealth Games. So that's a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, what's a, a sort of, a, sort of a little bit philosophical about where I'd approach an athlete that comes along these days and say, well, it's not all going to happen instantly. If you keep working away, you chip away, climb up their little what, step, step, steps at a time. Right, so I raved on far too long there about personal experience and how I got into, into this stuff and, and then the, the journey, really. Yes, as you should, though, because I'm most excited to ask, and that is my next question, about what you enjoy most in your work. But I just want to comment that, yeah, you rave on because there's plenty to rave on about, Kerry. That's <laughs> awesome. And heaps of different <laughs> places and, and opportunities. And it sounds like it's not super linear. I think often... At least I felt that pressure if you leave high school and you know exactly what's happening next and next and next. And I, what I appreciate is you've taken opportunities and just explored and it's it's led you to where you are and a really colourful, cool history you have and will continue to pay for yourself. So my next yeah. question is, what do you enjoy the most in your work? We have rough days. Everyone does occasionally. But... Arriving at training washes it all away, and as soon as I get there and see the crew, I, I feel refreshed. Um, it's medicinal, really. Even if they're having a rough day, no one sort of lets it show very much, or my job is to find out if they're having a rough day because it might affect what they're doing physically that day. But uh, it just feels so good to be there with happy faces, and there'll be uh, good banter, and there'll be hard work, and all of that's invigorating. So uh, they're, they're making efforts. They're sacrificing all in their different ways uh, at different levels. And everyone respects everyone's different different abilities. I just feel so good when I get there, and and, and these other people are willing to try hard at, at what we what we agree is um it's going to be something to help them in their in their goals. Uh, it's very satisfied then to to see their work. To, the athletic side of it is a data driven sport. The speed as well. You can time all sorts of things, and you can measure, and you get jump. Uh, you get um um data that shows all oh, the things are happening so the progress as they come regularly it's easy to see they are more motivated uh, and it's provable so um but the main thing i think is our philosophy is to is to focus firstly on making them better people so better people uh, will make better parents 
better employees, and lastly, better athletes in that order. Um, so how do you do that? You've got to have respect for everyone. You've got to have heaps of humility. You've got to be honest. You've got to be consistent. And the moment I sat down and had a coffee uh, just yesterday with a, um, a guy who'll be going probably to the World Cup and playing for Tonga in rugby. And um, he said some of the things he asks people, he says, what's your best ability? And this refers to coaching as well. And um, I sort of hummed and hard about it. I said, oh, I'm, I'm always there. And he said, yes, your best ability is availability. I thought that was pretty profound, actually. I loved it. Um, you get lifelong. What do you enjoy about it? You get your lifelong friends out of it. I mean, um, I've got guys that, that st still stick together. They go to pub quizzes together. And 30, 35 years later, we're still in, in touch on this facial me social media thing about, you know, every 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 week or so. And uh, I may not see them for years, but um, it's, it's uh, well, social media is good. It doesn't feel like that, that you haven't seen them for years. But you're reminded of your age when you start coaching the children of, of athletes you used to coach. <laughs> That's sobering. <laughs> it's pretty cool, though. I can imagine maybe the first time is a little bit like sobering, to use your terminology, but pretty special that clearly the parents loved you enough to make sure that their kids were going and getting coached by you. It's, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, thanks. It, but it's, You've got both ends of the spectrum. You've got some that um, stopped training and never heard from them since in, in six months, a year, 20 years, and others who you hear from regularly. But many will say that I was their coach sort of thing or somebody else was their coach. And in fact, there's a, there's a film crew doing a documentary at the moment about a profile netball coach, and we haven't communicated all in 30 years but this film crew turned up here and said we want to talk about this and this and this and particularly related to this particular person that's going to be on the on the news pretty soon and we want you to give us some of the photos that you have of, of her from the past and some anecdotes and i thought wow 30 years later she's got a film crew to come and visit the old coach and that's something and i'm sure people listening will think of someone and if they're not into sports maybe it was a teacher or it was a music something or a, a boss whoever it was that really coached you because I think coaching's not it's not sports specific but that's obviously how we've experienced it yeah but you feel that and um so even though you might not hear from people there it's it's not out of sight out of mind actually it's not you know well for us for you and I it isn't and for many others yeah so and that gets me into my my next question for you is you do work with so many teams and different athletes. I know you've mentioned it now, like you've got obviously athletics, rugby sevens, volleyball, water polo, league, surf life, like all over the show um, and all these different disciplines. So how do you prepare and approach the unique elements of each sport? The different sports are really only different movements different mechanics different physiology but they're all populated by people and all those people need to feel support and honesty uh, to feel that the coach is prepared to work for them as hard as they work for themselves or even harder i, I spend more time at training uh than the athletes some athletes will miss training but i basically can't afford to because one athlete might miss particular days sick or exams and things like that but there's someone else there so i've still got to be there 
Uh, I did make a mistake once in saying in front of my own kids, I spend more time with other people's kids than my own. I don't think that helped relationships a little bit in the house, but um, no, I, I, one of the things that I think that's apart from the, from the, the movements, literacy, that's those skills and the variety, wide variety of physiology and chemistry involved in that is that you've got to understand their goals. And I once did a, um, a return of a group that I had, one of my first ever large groups up in Auckland, actually, I called it the fear return. I was in fear of what they would return in this questionnaire. Score me on a scale of one to 10 out of all these different questions. And two of the key, two, two, two that are, we're still in super regular touch now, um, like, like decades later, they didn't score me very high in, in what I asked them, do you feel supported? And, you know, I love them to bits. And they, they um, so later on, I had to ask, and this was an a supposedly anonymous um, thing, but what they didn't know, of course, they had to write something somewhere, and I, and I knew everyone's handwriting. So <laughs> so I found, I figured out who it was, a male and a female. Then one of the guy's goals for me was he could have got in the 1990 Commonwealth Games team if he did blah, blah, blah. And his, his answer was, well, no, I've got tickets for that. Um, I'm not, uh, uh, I don't really need to try as hard as the others. Well, I said, well, you are training as hard as the other guys in the squad. He said, no, no, I want to come and watch them. So he'd bought grandstand and tickets for him and a whole bunch of mates to come and watch his mates at training. And, my, and I'm just about crying, thinking, you could be in the team, man. I'm saying, so I, I sort of um, found a way to to, to to identify who it was and then bring it out and have a quiet chat about it. But I said, look, your mates would sooner see you on the track, not you watching with you, watching others of your mates. He said, no, I just want to come to training to be friends, but to be with my friends. I said, well, before you came training, you didn't know any of them. And and now you're going to run until it hurts. How the, how's, that, how's that fun? He said, oh, well, we, we, we do it together. Big things I learned out of out of what why people come to training so the approach then is based on know the person and then you can apply the sciences the movement sciences they're all pretty much the same there's a you know it's uh, you're either going to go forwards or you, as you do you went backwards uh, in the boat yeah <laughs> sitting on your butt going backwards they it's all just hard work and you've got to work certain muscle groups other other things works in others. One of the things I found um, from a teaching days was a, a, a science called somatotypes, which studies the different bodies. You go to the Olympic Village and there's a huge array. There's every type of body on the world there, you know, little um, gymnasts and monster basketball players. And what they found was, as well as the different bodies, those bodies correlated with personalities. For example, rugby props are basically all the same personality. They're big, they're big, they're square shaped, they're funny, they, they're tough, uh, and they communicate well with each other, even if it's the enemy op opposition after the game. They're close mates. Um, the wingers and the halfbacks, totally different beast. I was I was out in the backs out there. I didn't speak to any, any, any of the opposition after the game. Couldn't stand them. Well, a few became mates. But generally, this happens with a sport and comparing one sport to another. Uh, if you if you relate the different cultures between between athletes within athletics, throwers and the distance runners, completely different animals in the personality. Rugby league versus a swimmer. 
um, a weightlifter and a volleyballer, a synchronized swimmer and, and, and another sport. You know, they're quite different types and you have to adapt to what they are, but they all want success. They all want, want reward for their hard work. So adjust to that. I did find when I was doing some speed with the Warriors and the Blues at the same time, quite a different culture within those two teams and um, quite a different culture, even at the administrative end. But now oh, working with the sevens, oh, there's nothing more joyful I've ever done. I, if you, they have, I think it's, I think it's written down somewhere in rugby, maybe the All Blacks or the sevens in one of their handbooks. It just says no dickheads. And they're serious about it. You know, it's, you have to be a good person to survive together and support each other. If you don't want to do that, well, we've got others who will. So they'll bring them in and you're gone. So every single one is so respectful and humble. No, believe it. I, I've got um, young athletes who have only met these guys once and, and one of them will cross the room at the gym and go and shake hands with someone who just walked in. I'm going, hang on, you guys are full-time international Olympic medalist professionals. And these kids are 10 years away from that. And they'll go and shake their hand and ask them how they are. Look, I'll tell you, it, it gives me goosebumps to just be just be there. And uh, it's an absolute joy to be in that culture. And, and the positivity they get out of it is different. And it's very different uh, also between the men and the women. The women a lot more joking. The men joke like crazy all the time, but the women far more so. And they laugh and giggle and they're loud as. The music goes up in the gym when they're in there and it's 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 bonkers. I like that and I like those details you've you've given there. Thank you. I um wanted to ask too is how would you define high performance? Because I know sometimes we throw around that word and often associate <laughs> it specifically with athletes or um sports, but it can be wider than that. So how do you define it? It's got a double whammy to it. I think it's it's um, high performance is anyone who's working tirelessly and patiently to get to internationals level or to a very high national level where in some sports the selection standards are now ludicrously tough. I mean, the, the, the Olympics movement now is getting more and more and more people in the village. Well, no, they can't. They're getting more and more sports in the village. So they, can, they only fit about 10,500 people in the village now, and it's the same 30, 25 years ago. Uh, so the world's population is zooming up and the and they're increasing the number of sports, especially team sports that are in there. So they've got to cut back somewhere. How do you cut back? Well, you go to weightlifting or swimming or athletics or something like that and say, well, your standards are much, much higher now. And to qualify for a lot of the standards in, in athletics anyway, um, just to qualify to run for your country in the heats would probably win a gold in the late nineteen late nineteen eighties. In fact, would definitely win a, win a gold in many of the many of the events. So, what's high performance? Well, it could be someone who just misses out on that and uh, on that level, but they're performing better than former gold medalists, um, even back in the drug days. They're faster than some of the ones on the drug days when drugs were legal. That is, and it's not it's not their fault. Um, no one took a lot of notice until you know the 1970s. But yeah, it's ludicrous, ludicrously tough because we can't get any more people to these meets now. They're cutting back on the on the numbers that are the, that are there. <clears throat> so it's becoming more and more of an elite sport. And what happened when I was at Teachers College was our, our lecturer 
bless him, uh, Noel Bowden, uh, he, he was he played for the All Blacks uh, back in the fifties. He told he told us that back in the Roman days, ancient Romans, people used to watch the gladiators. But before the gladiators came along, the Roman army was very very fit, and they they just took over Europe and North Africa. So he said, once they had that luxury, people stopped. Uh, worrying about getting hang of a fit, the army sort of disintegrated a bit. They they had a bit more skullduggery going on out out in the out in the districts and and back home. So it became then a nation where people used to go along and watch sport and watch people entertain them, the gladiators, you know. And so and then they became unfit and then they and and lack of they lost their discipline. He relates that he related that at that time to University of Chicago, where they've got just a handful of teams, sports teams. But a student population of about, I think he said something like forty or fifty thousand, and only a few hundred could access the gym, the 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 decent facilities at the uni because that was reserved for very very few, like the basketball team, the gridiron team, the track team, swim team, and so on. That's not very many out of, out of thousands, tens of thousands. So he said that's become the the, the world's becoming a nation of watchers now. Well, I think the you know people in the gyms. Gym owners and that would dispute that a little bit, but then uh, that was something that, that that hit home to me at that time. Anyone who's aspiring to get to the top, because that's part of the journey, they've got to they've got to go through a high performance approach in order to get to high performance. And you've done that. So if you if you don't if you didn't train hard, you were going nowhere in that in what you chose to do. So you just put more and more and more effort in, and you became very good. So that's um, that's what you do. Um, and then there's varying levels, isn't there, of, of sacrifice and, of course, God-given um, talent to, to, to work on. It's working at those levels and working towards it and sacrificing, oh. getting in a good situation where you've got good facilities, coaching, uh, lifestyle. Interesting because the whole thing, right, about, like, high performance, the standard shifts, whether that's the Olympic standard shifts. So appreciating, so I appreciate you saying that too, is high performance, the standards are shifting a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, a while ago, the world's population was 4 billion. Now it's about 8 billion, I think. Okay. But a while ago, in the village was 10,500. And now it's still 10,500. The popular world population has doubled. And not only that, we've now got, other countries coming into the games that never were there. You know, China, Russia wasn't in the Olympics until 1956. Um, Africans, well, they weren't even, they weren't even at the, at the, well, almost zero Africans were at the 1960 Olympics. And then they've had a a boycott or two since, so they weren't there. But, and and the coach education around the world now is getting into countries that, um, okay, so when Peter Snell won his gold medal in the Rome Olympics, there was something like 68 countries there, okay? 68 out of 200 and something, righto? Now, there's 68 different countries win medals in athletics alone. So, approximately. So, and then you've got all, all these other, other sports uh, trying to trying to cover all the youth of the world. I, I guess it, I'm, not, I'm not in that debate, so I don't know enough facts both sides of that, but those, those numbers game is... Um, well, it's a money. Is it a? It's a question. Is it a money thing where they they can't expand the numbers because of of the money? Uh, you, you'd have to have a hang of a lot more 
facilities that you put double, let's say the world population is doubled. So do we put 20,000 in the village, not 10,000? Okay, well, where are all the stadiums? Who, who can afford that? So that might be an argument for what some of the people are saying. Let's just have one the Olympics in one place all the time now. Permanent spot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that I mean, exactly. That's a, that's a debate. But I'll get to my next question because that no one problem. we could we could go on for that one. Um, yeah. I speaking of places. So you work with national, provincial, international clients, um, athletes from various sporting backgrounds. What have been your most memorable teams and places to coach? Teams, the an athletics team that goes off the Olympics is basically a collection of of um, of individuals, very focused individuals, and in most instances, they are focused only on themselves, and they'll pay lip service to supporting other other people in the team, but it's not their number one passion. That's for sure when they're there. But team sports, they know if they're not super together uh, collectively, the team won't win, and they're part of a losing team. So they, um, I think one of the most memorable things is is the is the um, the individuals who sacrifice so much and their their suffering and their commitment is just so inspirational and, and you've got to respect that massively massively and that's the sort of people they are so that toughness and sacrifice and goal setting and all that sort of thing is what they will be. They won't change. That's, that's, that's the sort of thing they are. They'll be good at something else when they stop their sport. But um, I think some of the things that, 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 that's gone well has been um, teams that weren't expected to do well that really did. I, I can think of, um, I had North Harbour Secondary School's rugby team for, for, for five years. And in those years, we beat the Auckland Secondary School team uh, twice and drew with them once in the final. So three out of the five, we were we were okay and um and, and in the final, but they had heaps of New Zealand schoolboys in their team. We had one. So um or the northern region teams that um secondary school rugby that won the national tournaments, only four teams go to the national region tournament. And we won that five years in a row. So although I was only coach of them of those teams of so four of those years, I think. But um uh, that, that that so rugby teams either probably been the the most fun. The athletic groups have good individuals within them. There's been there's been um, like eight eight Olympians come out of out of my groups in the past, and others are lovely are happy to be there and associate with those people and be part of them. And they all train very very similar. Socially though, the uh, the Doha Rugby Club in Qatar, while that was that was something else, they were all expats. And when I got there, half of them were vets and the other half were teenagers. So we built it, built up, especially with a, a guy called Aaron Palmer, who um, Kiwi, who came over there and got involved and ended up coaching, coaching there too. And I just became the manager because he was a better coach. It's it's like winning when you're not expected to. I think that's that's when the greatest pressures come. Unexpected, unexpected successes. I think is the, that's the greatest thrill. Yeah. But you work for it. <laughs> well, I wonder too, eh? Because it's it's unexpected, but then there's also sometimes the ones who have put in you know put in the mahi and done things right like there's got to be there's got to be a this different kind of pride when you just know someone's done everything as a coach you've asked of them and more mm. and 
you, you almost have expected it from them. So when it comes through, like, cool, what I'm coaching is right. My 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 process is working. Is there a bit of that? Yes, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I had um, I had a um a roller mills team once, a primary school team. We played and um we beat an Auckland team. We, there was Auckland was divided into three regions. We beat an Auckland team, and the courage that kids showed. I thought, well, I'll pick these. I'll pick this team and that team and this guy's in here of that. And he's in because he's a brilliant goal kicker and he can run like hell. And then, and then I thought, well, I don't expect them to tackle too well. They were, they were, they were tackling out of their, out of their, out of their skins. And you're sitting there going, they're just about, you know, get a lump in your throat, thinking these kids shouldn't be able to play like this. But they did, and they did it for each other, and then got the result. And that was huge. In fact, one of the one of the incredible incredible things about that tournament in that little town. There were more people came paid at the gate. To, all, everybody was billeted in the town. And there's 160 players from the various regions. And more people paid to come in the gate than what actually lived in the town. So you can imagine what it, what the environment was. And then these these little Form 2 kids, what are they year? What's that year? Eight, is it? They played out of their skins. That's super memorable. I remember that more than games that I've played on on Eden Park sort of thing when when the club teams in Auckland used to play on there. So that's that's yeah, they get, you get a buzz out of that. You really do. You really, really do. Oh, um, thank you. Oh. Wanna ask this question. So I ask this every time to every guest and a lot of us know what it is and maybe we've experienced it, but we don't have that dialogue. So in your own words, what is tall poppy syndrome? Oh, I'm wondering whether it's our nation's infatuation with being humble. That story of um of of, of the little fella beating the big one. What, what am I trying to David think of? David and Goliath. That's the one, yeah, yeah. So David New Zealand tried to become pretty good. We had some amazing inventors and hang of a hard workers. Uh they had to to survive to make a country. And and uh so that that led to Everybody's sort of trying to be a little bit equal, uh, not socialist, but we thought we're all hardworking, we're all all deserving. And I think that's the historical way I look at it. These days, mm, I think I I, I, do, I am a little bit concerned about um, a close friend I've got who prefers to live overseas and has done really well, really, really well in sport. Uh, prefers to live overseas where he's revered, he's recognised and cons- or and if he's not known, he'll say what he did, and he gets respect for it and popularity and um, a- a decades later. But in New Zealand, you're here now. When you're hot, you're hot. When you're not, you're forgotten. And um, you look in some of the places like in Scandinavia, they've, they've got statues of of all sorts of um, Olympians that they've had from the past. I don't know how many statues there are in New Zealand of of ours. I can only think of about three: Michael Jones at Eden Park, Peter Snell down in his home town of Opanaki, John Walker in Manarewa. I can't think of any others. There might be one or two, but off the top of my head, no. So there's we're not into sticking people up on a pedestal. We give them a we give them a um, uh, OBE or an MBE or that sort of thing, but. Uh, whatever they are called these days, and uh, and that's it. But there, I mean, one of my coaches. In fact, this the, the, 
fellow that one we're going to have a memorial for next he got one of those awards and never told anyone i don't know about it until i did some homework on him yesterday and i, I will have mentioned that and, and my other co-coach is putting that he, he's the co-coach of me he's putting this thing together he's got a queen's award it's one of the great secrets in the family so that, that, that you know um be, be humble be, um almost hide what you did and i think there's a great difference there between new zealand and australia as a comparison and i relate that to the difference between usa and britain where in britain there's a lot more sort of um down mouth sort of thing and a lot more moaning than there is in usa where they're up market so often if they're not being racist then they're <laughs> then they're up market and giving it um talking it up talking it up with the greatest country in the world well says who you got the best of the best and the worst of the worst that doesn't make you great so australia are more in many 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 ways uh, com commercially attitude wise they're more similar to usa in being wanting to be aggressive and world players uh and positive and energetic and because of that they're more similar to usa than britain and we're more similar to britain than usa we're a bit more inclined to be more conservative uh sitting back we're certainly more more um more conservative than 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 most of the aussies in terms of their place in the world um we don't have enough pride that um oh, yeah, this is a classic auckland commonwealth games um i was the head coach of our of our athletics team and i got, contacted the media and tried to get them and in fact i had one of my athletes organize it the numbers for them the data tried to say per head of population we do pretty good and um one of the athletes was actually a newspaper reporter and he gave me a hard time he said what do you what do you mean is that's what your goal is that's what you're aiming for and say well we're not likely to get more medals than australia or england england got 50 plus million we got three million at that time um and aussie you've always got five six times our population we we just want to get close to them but we're not going to head them off because it's a it's a numbers game for talent and um it gave me a hard time this this particular guy and um didn't want to print it that we were second to bermuda per head of population in athletics in the medals count and and also in the say the finalists the top eight athletes he said well you should be aiming for first i said well oh, that's not realistic you know we go through goal setting all goals have to be realistic so then uh and nowadays the media will pick that up um well bermuda well, they got about two hundred and fifty thousand people and they got a they got a silver medal they're number one bingo and good good for them so um but we do we do better than we than we think compared to other countries but <laughs> we're not going to beat some of them some of the countries got 80 million people and we've got five or whatever it is we're not going to beat them in lots of things um i was talking last night in the gym to a couple of irish guys that that worked there in the high performance gym about the irish rugby irish rugby is only the fourth biggest winter winter code there you know hurling gaelic football and soccer are all bigger than rugby yet yet they're, they're the number one in the world at the moment so i hope they're proud of it super proud of it um and we, they've got about the same population as us but it's our number one winter code not by numbers when we look at football and the young kids coming through but um the the uh 
I, I, I think we we undersell ourselves as a human being. I, I don't like Americans saying we're the greatest country in the world and I'm the greatest person because I'm greater than you because I'm from America. Oh, that's, that's rubbish. Your country's big. You've got resources. You've got a big military. Your taxes pay for that. Um, but you've got a lot of failures. And um, you've got some things better than us because of your money. But you've got some things worse than us because of your behaviours. So uh, I, I, I think that it's um, yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of an attitude thing where we are too timid about our successes and we don't set up heroes. Um, the best stadium in the world, in my view is the warm-up track outside the Rome Olympic Stadium, which has a marble seating right around this running track, about four layers high, and about 50 marble statues standing around the, standing around this, tra this stadium. It's incredible. And there's no way, <laughs> there's no way we'd sort out 50 famous New Zealanders and make statues of them and stick them in Eden Park, you know? <laughs> So that's, um, we can be humble, we can be respectful, but we have to be also proud, surely. A Kiwi's a pretty good sort. Well said. We've kind of touched upon it. How has the high-performance landscape evolved since your time in the field, and do you see it evolving further? Yeah, it'll evolve further. We're always learning. We never stop. You think you stop learning, you're already brain dead. So when it gets to, uh, I think what the high performance do, think, the situation does is it allows us to bring in together as a team a wide variety of experts in very specialised areas now. When when I was a PE teacher, we didn't have uh, exercise physiologists. We had a few people studying it who became PE, PE teachers. Now you've got specialists in that. You've got specialists in various departments of exercise physiology. You've got area of, of, of medical support and what have you now and, uh, and nutrition. And not only nutrition, you've got sports nutrition. Not only doctors, you've got sports doctors. That's evolved and we'll have to keep on evolving. We've got to keep learning and we've got to try and keep one step ahead of, of somewhere else and, and try and fund it. So um, when... Uh, if we don't do any good in a particular Olympic cycle, some of the sports get a hard time and they get a lot of money chopped. In places like Russia and France, uh, well, in France, they're funded on the basis of how big is your sport in the world. If you're a biggest sport in the world, we give you the biggest grants. If something went wrong, they don't like take money away. They throw more money at it, at that particular sport. What I do see happening in the high-performance sport, though, is that it also seems to be a license for a, um, for a rapidly evolving and an increasing number of bureaucrats in the system. And wherever you've got that, you're thinking, well, the sport's got X amount of dollars to play with. Where is it going? How's it being used? Is it, go is it moving towards increasing participation, firstly? And is it and moving towards helping your, your international performance? That's, uh, that's something that's up for debate, I believe. Yeah, any 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 employment in the budget has to be justified by being paid for by an increase in participation or the ability to attract sponsors or and the ability to attract sponsors or or um 
it's justified by 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 having um, a higher profile and a higher higher performance side. That's um, yeah. I hope that helps with uh, your deliberations. <laughs> Absolutely. I um, I think in general through this conversation, I know for me, and I'm hoping I, I'm thinking definitely there's people listening. There's a lot of food for thought is the easiest way to put it because you've been immersed in this high performance sport across the world across different disciplines and I really appreciate getting to talk to you about it of how you've seen it evolve where you think it's going to go how it kind of interacts just with the people being people and what sport can represent um I could I could ask you a million more questions but people won't want to listen for that long so my final question has nothing to do with sport but if I always sign off with, if you were going to have one meal, Kerry, for the rest of your life, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what is that meal going to be? And I know you've, you're well-traveled, so <laughs> what is it? New Zealand lamb roast, lamb veggies, uh, you know, um, kumra, uh, and any of those roasted kumra, kumra carrots, and... Um, uh, parsnips, uh, got to be green peas, and uh, and a decent gravy with the mint thrown in somewhere, and and um, that'll do. That's what that's what you crave for when you when you're overseas. Yeah, when you're overseas, paying for that at a less price than what you get in New Zealand. So, oh gosh, there's a stir. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, when I was in Qatar, New Zealand mussels, apples, lamb, steak cheaper there than here so um so i reintroduced ourselves to, to steady <laughs> roast meals over there that was good <laughs> and muscles oh, epic that yeah. sounds pretty spot on to probably what my dad or at least he that'd be up there on his on his list of things too seriously yeah. Kerry, thank you so much for sparing your time with me and just like all your expertise your smiles infectious. It just sets sets up a, a situation, an environment anyway. So you would have been a, a stunning crew member, uh, oh. team member, and uh, it's been a, it's been an honour and a pleasure. So thanks for the opportunity, Grace, and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you so much for listening to Tall Poppy Talk. We'll see you next time. Feel free to check us out on socials, YouTube, and the website. Thanks for today's guest, and we'll see you all next time. Take care. Be kind.